Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to The Conversation. I'm Mark Thompson here for Jank. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Got a couple of conversations within the overall conversation that are really interesting. Uh, one of which has to do with statehood for the District of Columbia. And there's a whole political reason that statehood for the District of Columbia hasn't made it past the place it is now. And we'll also talk about other places that don't have statehood, like Puerto Rico, for example. But beyond that, uh, it's an overall discussion, I think, about government and kind of things we lose sight of. But before we even get to that, I love a good congressional race, and we've got one in Florida with a great candidate, Jen Perlman. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Jen, tell us about this district. It's Florida's 23rd. Where is that? We are in South Florida. So our district is obviously, it's very gerrymandered. So we are a good portion of Southern Broward, and then we go down into Northern Coastal Dade. So we, we span two counties. So in that uh, you know, highly gerrymandered district, there are disparate interests, right? A lot of people want different things and you have to try to address a lot of those things as you campaign. Yeah, you know, it's very diverse, our district, even though it's very gerrymandered blue, it is really diverse. So we have a very large senior population and a lot of those are Jewish seniors. And then we have a very large Latino population and we have a black population. So it is it is diverse and it's really just a matter of us getting out the voters that don't normally come out and vote. You're, you're someone who obviously has reflected, I say obviously because I mean it makes sense that you'd be with us on TYT's progressive values in, in your, uh, your stump speeches and in uh, much of the retail politics you've done, talking to people and all the rest. I'm wondering, of those progressive policies in general and that progressive philosophy, what stuff resonates? Um, I mean, overall, we are about the idea that the income inequality has just reached an unethical and untenable level in this country. And that is something that needs to be addressed on many fronts. So, you know, we our first primary policy we is Medicare for all. And to me, that is the single, that will be the single best change in most people's lives in the quickest amount of time that I think people can't even foresee how good of a change that will be in our future, our economy and everything. So I'd say our biggest issue is Medicare for all. Do people you speak with about that feel it's a fading dream as though they're, they're you know, their cries for Medicare for all or for some kind of reform in the healthcare system, those cries are falling on deaf, deaf ears or do you feel as though people are hopeful? I see both because the younger people are infinitely more hopeful. And then we have, like I said, an elderly population that isn't as concerned with Medicare for all because they have Medicare. 
So it's a little bit of a different marketing to the older community in terms of how it will benefit them. And when they hear things like, well, you won't have all your supplements, your plan Bs, your your copays, you'll have less expensive pharmaceuticals, you'll get long-term care, you'll get vision, you'll get dental. So it's really just a matter of putting out for the right audience what the, how it benefits them. You're a lawyer uh, in your former life, right? When I, when I had a life, yes. <laughs> and uh, when you were a lawyer, you I know you were an advocate for uh, indigent, uh, I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, for, for those who, the poor, who, who yes. needed representation but couldn't afford it. Yeah, I'm out of law school, I did a lot of uh, criminal defense. And where I was in was in San Antonio and in Texas. The large counties do not have public defender's offices. And instead what they do is judges will appoint attorneys from the bench. So it really allowed for a lot of flexibility, and I just really enjoyed it a lot. So yeah, I mean, I was getting court appointments, mostly misdemeanors, and really representing people that would otherwise not have any attorney. And then I would do other pro bono things through the family court wheel. We did Jane Roe cases where we would represent teenage girls that were seeking a judicial bypass to parental consent abortion laws. So just all different, I'd say, service areas where people normally go unrepresented. I think it's striking, I guess, because when you look at the income disparities, which you've pointed to, and you just you, you see this this gap that leaves so many people unable to afford any kind of legal representation, you've seen that firsthand. Oh, yes, I have definitely seen that firsthand. I see it daily. Uh, I've been campaigning now for about a year. And between the organizations, the municipalities, and the people that I talk to, there is no shortage of evidence of the wealth problem in this country, the inequality of wealth in this country. It's everything from people not being able to afford healthcare, for people not getting paid sick leave, for you know people not making a living wage. We have an affordable housing crisis that's very significant down here in Broward. I think we're one of the worst in terms of affordability of housing in the country, if I'm not mistaken. So it's very real here. And we have McDonald's workers that are making $8.25 an hour. So this is not a living wage. I mean, I generally will have this, this concept with people that I explain to them, you know, if we just paid people a living wage, then they could just afford to live and we wouldn't have specifically affordable housing. You would just have people and they would just live where they can live. So, I mean, I just think that the, the best way to attack it is from every possible angle and just get whatever you can in there. But all of our platform essentially is designed to narrow the gap of income inequality in this country. Yeah, and then I, I know we touched on the Medicare for all issue. You know, it's funny, there are Democrats in Florida, Debbie Wasserman Schultz is one, and yet she really wouldn't pass any sort of progressive litmus test related to Medicare for all, for example. No, actually, I'm, I'm friends with uh, the members, I'm in and friends with members of the Progressive Caucus, and they have uh, met with her, they have gone to her office and met with her, although it isn't her, it's, um, you know, a representative for her. But no, she clearly will not sign on to Medicare for all. And, you know, you, you can speculate, is it, you know, that she takes big pharma money, that she takes private insurance money, is it, you know, it, it could be a myriad of things. Maybe she just fundamentally doesn't think people are entitled to health care. I, I really don't know. And when you take so much corporate money, it's very hard to distinguish what your values are if you have any, because you're really doing the bidding of your corporate donors. Do they see so, you? Do, I don't know. Yeah, I, well, I mean, she is the very essence, you know, of the mainstream Democratic Party in all of its corporate capture that's gone on there. So I, I'm not, 
I'm not surprised uh, on one level. And yet, uh, she can see the popularity, I would think, just because we're talking about it, of uh, Medicare for All, or certainly some kind of um, reforming of the healthcare system, as with that as a goal, perhaps. And yet, to be so resistant does sort of smell bad. Yeah. So, uh, and so, the, what's her status as a politician there? You know, she's locally speaking, she is, there is still a certain amount of insiders. Um, especially within what we would call our super voter demographic, your Democratic Party leaders that are local and even statewide that are still very much behind her. Um, she's very entrenched in that. But, you know, there are so many people that are so desperate for change. And it's really a matter of going out into the community and bringing people in, like I said, that have felt left behind and that normally don't participate in the process. And I have been doing work in these communities for now a, a year. And I, and I really feel like by doing service in the community, and my campaign is all about community service. All of my volunteers, we call us GenCorp, and we're doing service in the community and just showing this district what it's supposed to look like when you have a representative that is a public servant. So, you know, I think that I'm able to reach a segment of the population that she could never or wouldn't ever even try to reach. Uh, look, your personal history is one that reflects a commitment to that community that wasn't, you know, just born a year ago. Uh, you, you've really, that's why I touched on uh, your pro bono representation of all of these uh, various uh, uh, cl legal clients, if you want to think of them that way, who desperately needed representation. They had no money. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, I'm wondering, as a, I have to say this, I mean, it, politics is tough. I mean, there's a lot of heavy lifting, you know? And you're someone who left professional life because you had a child who had special needs. And I'm wondering how you make time, given all the time you've had to dedicate at home, to still go out and do retail politics. Um, well, you know, I took 10 years off. I, I was inactive as a lawyer for 10 years. And now I have one that's in college and I have one that's 13 and infinitely more self-sufficient. And regarding his needs, he has learning issues, not necessarily um, what we would call special needs. So he's very, you know, he takes care of himself like a normal teenager would take care of himself. So I don't have any additional stressors other than just having a teenager in the house. <laughs> so, so, so it's, you know, I'm in a position right now where I'm able to do this. And I, and I feel that that is such a privilege to be able to do this. Most people cannot afford to take this time, raise the money and be able to do this and commit to this. So it really is a privilege. And I say that it's my privilege to lend my privilege. It's, I mean, and I really think I kind of wanted to point out to everyone, you know, you do walk the walk as well as talk the talk. And I, so when you say you feel it's a privilege, it really rings true. Like uh, as, as some, it, it sounds like it might be something a politician says, but in your case, you have a life that actually reflects that sort of commitment. So what are the challenges from going forward? What are the most uh, immediate challenges? Uh, raising money is you know, always a challenge, and that's always something that we have to be doing. And since we don't take corporate and corporate PAC money, we are funded by largely very small dollar donations. So it's really a constant getting the word out, spreading the message, recruiting volunteers, and just really bringing people in and in this new, it's a paradigm shift. We're really changing the whole concept of what congressional representation is supposed to look like. And so I think a lot of people are excited about this. And a lot of people have reached out to us. And I've been surprised in a lot of cases of the amount of people that have found me. And I, I feel, you know, 
yeah, it would be nice to feel like there's not going to be any funny games or shenanigans or cheating or voter suppression. But I think we all know that those are things that we just live with now. And so it's hard to say, you know, if this were down just to a fair fight and it was just policy versus policy and people could actually see us next to each other. And I think it would be a lot different. But because it is the way it is, yeah, I mean, I've got some serious some significant concerns about um, election integrity moving forward. Oh my gosh, yes, that for another conversation. But uh, it's unfortunately, as you say, the nature of the beast at the moment anyway. Check out Jen Perlman. Her website is gen2020.com, gen2020.com. You can donate actblue.com slash donate slash gen2020. Volunteer, gen2020.com slash volunteer. But it's all there at the website, gen 2020 Dot com. Jen Perlman, good luck. We are hoping for good news from Thank you Florida's so much. 23rd. Thank you. Yeah. Really enjoyed talking to you. When we come back, on to the politics of DC statehood. We'll be right back. <music> Want to get into some DC politics and the politics of statehood as played out by someone who's been a passionate advocate for it all. I'm Mark Thompson. Welcome back to the conversation, and please help me welcome in Taryn Sims. Hi, Taryn. Hey, how's it going, Mark? I'm very well, sir. You, uh, you know, you're somebody who who has an uh, an activism in his background and successful activism, and you've really taken on something that I think is super tough, which is uh, the notion of statehood for Washington D.C. Give us a little of the history, and then we can talk about the politics of why they've never achieved it before. Yeah, you know, the history of D.C. obviously is, is unique because uh, the city was crafted to serve as the nation's capital. Um, up until 1967, or actually, well, let's we'll start with 1967 and go, go back. So in 1967, President Lyndon Johnson decided to uh, reconstitute, lack of a better word, how D.C. city government was structured. Because up until that point, the mayor of D.C. was always a was a presidential appointee, and there was like a board of governors that he also that the president would also select. And the the mayor of D.C. was really more of a ceremonial um, honorarium type position. So if VIPs like kings, queens, presidents, prime ministers of other countries would come visit D.C., the mayor of D.C. was the one who served as the official host. Um, when when President Johnson decided to reconstitute uh, the, the DC's government in 67. Um, he appointed Walter Washington as its first actual mayor to govern the city. But then in 1975, DC was allowed to have its first uh, its first popular vote to, to select its mayor and its city council, which obviously is uh, Mayor and Barry. <laughs> Yeah, that was, uh, uh, well, it is what it was. But but it is weird, even as you go through the history, to think, wow, it was 1975 before there was really a vote for a mayor there? That's correct. That's <laughs> correct. Um, yeah, it's funny, right? I mean, because D.C., how it was then, is, is totally different than how we see it today, especially, you know, with the global war on terror, with all the, you know, people who've moved to D.C. since uh, since the towers fell in 2001. But you know, if, if you look at D.C. when it was founded, you had um, aristocratic type folks and you had slaves, right? And the slaves outnumbered the aristocrats, so there was really no need uh, in their minds to you know give full rights to anyone living in D.C. 
Because if people, I guess, if the aristocrats really wanted to vote, then they'd go move back to Maryland or D.C., Delaware, wherever, wherever they had come from. But we're definitely now in a different time, which is why I think with LBJ, with all the civil rights legislation that he was passing during that time period, why it made sense for him to transition D.C. into more of a, re a representative uh, form of government. And I think now, well, I, I know now that we are at a point uh, in our nation's history where we can't, we, we can no longer allow DC residents to go without full representation. Well, uh, I'm gonna get to in a second, the reason why it hasn't happened before. I mean, yeah. there's a political reason too. I mean, you've explained oh, yeah. it's like all these other things, the electoral college and all mm -hmm. this stuff that's a holdover from a time long ago, which oh, yeah. was uh, corrupt at its core anyway, but it applied to a nation that we just are no longer resembling today. Uh, but this incredible thing happened, and that is that the House committee passed a D.C. statehood bill. I mean, it seems to be finally getting some movement. What happened? I, I think, as I stated before, I think just the times um, have have caused uh, Democratic leaders to realize that uh, they weren't they hadn't been doing the right things uh, decades ago. Um, I believe that the uh, tenor that President Trump uh, has created during his uh, his term in office has motivated people to, at least in this case, our congressional leaders, to realize that they need to do uh, what is what is what I would define as the right thing. And now to the political. It seems as though there might be some uh, political underpinnings to keeping D.C. from having a sort of uh, voting uh, uh, power in of Congress. Course. Yeah, I mean, it's always been that way, right? So um, there, there always was this, this uh, I wouldn't say plan, but an idea of making D.C. a part of Maryland, right? But if you did that, then the Democrats would gain at least two, two additional members of Congress uh, on top of the two additional uh, senators. And of course, those, those uh, representatives would be Democrats. So why would a Republican want to add uh, more folks to the Democratic side. And obviously the same goes with, with H.R. 5-1, where if D.C. becomes a state, then uh, you know, right, you know, Ellen, uh, Congresswoman Norton would get her full, uh, I guess, rights privileges as a member of Congress. And I'm assuming that the shadow senators would get those full rights as senators as well. But if it were to pass through the Senate and the president were to miraculously sign it, uh, then who knows, D.C. may get two or three members of Congress. So the pushback is, is party politics. The Republicans don't wanna lose any more power. I mean, it's the same reason that we sit here with Puerto Rico, for example, uh, without having any uh, voting power. And without a vote, you have no real power. Uh, it, but the reason I'm so intrigued by this is it does seem as though this conversation that we're having about this, and as you suggest, the demography of, of the nation's capital has changed. The conversation seems to have changed, but the politics, that part of the equation seems as though it's the same. Yeah, same story. Um, you know, people don't like to give up power without a fight. And you know, DC, DC uh, residents and their leaders are, gonna have, are gonna have to keep fighting if they wanna get their full constitutional rights. Well, you're someone who has, you know, 
you served uh, under Obama in in so in so many different uh, positions representing veterans. You uh, you know you you graduated from West Point. I mean you're you know you're up for a battle. I know. I mean I don't mean that you as and I mean that figuratively and literally. But I guess yeah. what I'm trying to say is uh, as you see this strikes me as a battle that evolves. You know, and even as I hear you speak, I mean I feel like it's evolving. Like it, it it's not coming to a head in the next year or two, but it is changing in the next year or two. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, I know that there were members of Congress like Jim Moran, for instance, who pretty much had always been uh, in favor of uh, D.C. statehood. Like the more progressive liberal uh, members of Dem uh, members of Congress on the Democratic side were always supportive, and and now we're getting to the point where the moderates are are supportive as well. And like you said, it'll it, sadly it'll take a little more time, um, and hopefully, uh, you know, some of the I guess more liberal, quote unquote, Republicans uh, will will join ranks with the Democrats and understand that you know rep representation for all matters and it should belong to all, including those of D.C. Yeah, I mean, well, clearly the uh, arguments are uh, stark and powerful uh, in favor of D.C. statehood, but it, the the politics and the tribalism seems. A stark and powerful too these days. So that's the thing that I wonder. And and so you're saying maybe you'll get some reconstituted Republicans to help out and pull it across the finish line. But otherwise, you'll need some change in the political leadership, won't you? Yeah. And you know, it's wishful thinking for it to occur this time around. I don't see that happening. Obviously, anything's possible. Uh, you know, Democrats uh, and anyone who's upset with the current administration has got to do their darnest uh, for, for uh, Donald Trump to lose in November. Um, after that, then you know, hopefully relationships can be mended and people can look themselves in the mirror um, and, um, you know, come to peace with some of the things that they allowed to occur. Uh, and then hopefully then, you know, we're talking about D.C. statehood. Then you know, hopefully, then some folks will Republicans in this case will, will realize you know it, it's time to just give D.C. residents their due rights. Taryn, let me ask you a totally naive question: How okay. come when the Democrats had control, they didn't fast track something like this through? You know, uh, uh, how did that one get into the outfield on the Democrats? I, I I wish I knew. I mean, there's a lot of legislation and things that. Um, People are looking back now. I mean, healthcare is another one, right? Um, we we should have rammed uh, the healthcare plan that that this country really needed down Congress's throat. Lack of a better way of saying it, but that didn't happen, right? And the same with this one. But it goes back to what I was saying earlier. You know, ten years ago, uh, only the progressive Democrats really understood the need for D.C. residents to have their full constitutional rights uh, with federal representation, and for reasons that I can't explain. Uh, the more moderate um, Democrats did not. And so even though, you know, I know when President Obama got elected, there was a real big push and people were making signs and T-shirts. And for reasons I can't explain, it didn't go anywhere. Yeah, look, uh, we could have another conversation about that too. I thought Barack Obama uh, regrettably reached across the aisle too much, even pre-compromised yes. a lot of legislation that you know, before it is even even the compromise was asked for, and and maybe lost in that wash was this D.C. statehood, which really would have given the Democrats power and political leverage. Uh, I think it's a set. What what can people 
do to follow this bouncing ball and to also exert whatever power they have as, uh, you know, as citizens of the U.S. in this time that you're kind of building this movement? They need to start calling and writing letters and emails to their to their senators, uh, both Democrat and Republicans. You know, senators, uh, elected officials, they tend to act on who's making the most noise. And so people who care about this issue, they need to make noise and, and make make their members know that just as they have their full constitutional rights, they believe that you know their brothers and sisters in DC ought to have them as well. That's good stuff. It is important to keep that visibility, I suspect. I mean, this issue has to stay visible. So I love that idea of calling and contacting senators and congresspeople. Hey, Taryn Sims, enjoy talking to you about this. I'll look forward to another conversation about some other stuff the next time, but thank you. Sounds good, Mark. Yeah, take care. Thanks. All right. Uh, that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. My podcast is called The Edge with Mark Thompson. Check it out sometime. We do some politics. We do a bunch of other stuff that has nothing to do with politics. But uh, we'd welcome you checking it out. But either way, I will see you here sometime soon. And until then, bye-bye.